0: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible, and those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is the Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, Michael Cardamone joins us. Michael is the Managing Director at Accelerprise, which invests in early-stage SaaS companies and provides a four-month program on introductions to customers, investors, and mentors that should help accelerate these businesses to the next level. In today's interview, we discuss what it's like to work with the founder of Box, Aaron Levy, why Michael launched an accelerator instead of a traditional venture fund. What he says to pundits that claim accelerator companies cannot figure it out on their own and thus are not fundable. We talk about the ways that AccelerPrize trains sales skills and helps with demand gen. We discuss pricing strategy for early stage startups, whether it's more important to have a large TAM or strong traction in a small niche. And we wrap up with trends in SaaS, as well as changes that Michael has witnessed in the category and his thoughts on what's next. Here's the interview with Michael Cardamone of AccelerPrize. Michael Cardamone joins us today from New York City. Michael is the Managing Director at AccelerPrize. AccelerPrize is an SF and New York City-based B2B SaaS accelerator with investments in agreement, GrowLens, Pio, and Story, among others. Previous to Accela Prize, Michael was an early employee on the BD team at Box and led BD in partner marketing at Academics Direct. Michael, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. I've been a big fan for a while. Appreciate yeah, it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you making the time. So what was it like working for Aaron Levy?
1: It was pretty incredible. He's he's as high energy as he is and publicly facing. I would say when I first joined he wasn't nearly as polished as he is now. He's had a lot of coaching along the way, but he was, you know, just incredibly smart, incredibly high energy, very passionate about what they were doing. So it was it was a great experience.
0: Do you think you have a a shared sort of hustle philosophy as Aaron now with your own startup, which is uh, you know, the accelerator?
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, you know, we have fairly different personalities. Like, I think he's just, like, naturally wired, like, ADD, like, thinks faster than he can talk, you know, just really kind of quick-witted and everything. But I would say, you know, different personalities, but very similarly driven, motivated, work hard. I think we just have a much more, like, kind of even keel steady. But yeah, uh, have had to hustle to get Excel price off the ground for sure
0: love it love it yeah i remember talking quite some time ago years ago actually probably 4 years ago with Mamoon Hamid who of course was at social capital is now at kleiner but talking with him about Aaron and how he met Aaron super early on with box and was just kind of blown away and yeah. uh, you know
1: i had mean, to get involved. I, I still remember just a quick anecdote on on Aaron which i think is just like a glimpse into you know his personality and how how funny he was but When I went to go interview with Box, I was coming from New York. I was in business school at Columbia. Like everyone wore suits. I went out to interview. It was my, like one of my first interviews out in San Francisco at a tech company. And I I wore a suit to the interview. And I, I go walk into the room with Aaron, and he literally, a made me take my tie off and B asked me if I was going to the prom after the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like starting off the interview on the right foot.
0: Love it. I was Love thoroughly it. embarrassed. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So can you give us like, you know, the short version of your backstory and sort of the path to Excel Prize?
1: Yeah. So from upstate New York, like I said, I went to business school in New York. Wanted to move out to San Francisco and get into tech. I was interviewing with a lot of different companies, both big tech companies, startups. And just really ended up really liking Box, not because I thought they would be this big public company someday. It was more just like it was a fun culture, starting with Aaron. You know, they were just, they had a lot of ambition. They were very hungry. They were a young team. And frankly, they were giving me more responsibility than I probably deserved at the time. So ended up going with Box, which was, you know, quite a lucky break. There were about 25 people at the time. Whoa. And so ended up there, spent time there, then ended up getting recruited over to another startup, Academic Direct, that a friend of mine had invested in and was on the board of. Ended up going there, and we grew that company to about $25 million in revenue. They were more in the ed tech space. And then in 2014, started really getting the itch to want to get into investing and venture. And so was consulting to some startups and advising, Had had done a couple of angel investments, was interviewing with some venture firms... And a couple things happened where like really, you know, I I ended up getting this like itch to start my own accelerator. One was I in one of my interviews, I was you know, talking to one of the partners. I was talking about my background and he he stopped me afterwards. He was like, great. You were early at a high growth company and you went to a good business school. You're literally a dime a dozen of people interviewing for venture jobs, like figure out a different way to be to stand out and be (laughs) differentiated. And I was like, yeah, you're 100 percent right. And it was a good wake up call. And then around the same time, I actually, this is like kind of, you know, maybe a little cheesy, but I saw Jim Collins speak, who's the author of Good to Great. Yeah. And he was talking about like how you, you know, if you work hard and you put yourself in good positions to get lucky, like most people will actually get lucky breaks once or twice in their career. And the people who are incredibly successful are the ones who can leverage that luck the best. And it like clicked with me. of like, look, I got lucky being at Fox. Like there's no way around that. I got lucky. And I, you know, not just like having that experience, but also the network I built because of that. And so I was like, why don't I start my own fund? Which was you know, probably a terrible idea. I had basically no investing experience. And so I but, but I decided I got like hell bent on doing that. I started socializing with people in my network about the idea of doing a SaaS focused accelerator. I felt like it would be a good opportunity where with a small fund you could have a meaningful impact on a lot of companies, still get a lot of equity, and really you know scratch the operating itch of like being involved from you know very early days with the founders and really rolling up your sleeves. And so I started looking around at Doing a SaaS focused accelerator, there were like two or three in the country that existed. One was Accelerze in DC, got connected to the guys who were running that, but they were running it part-time. They were all had started their own companies, which have been pretty successful. And they were thinking of not doing a second fund. So I ended up licensing their brand. They supported me in the beginning, but raised a separate, separate fund in San Francisco. And was able to just get a bunch of people to buy into it probably sooner than they should have, given I had, you know, very little investing experience. So ended up getting people like Nick Meta from you know CEO of Gainsight and my old boss at box, Karen Appleton, who was the seventh employee there, and Rowan Trollope, who's the CEO of Five Nine now, Teens CEO of Zora, like a lot of people who were founders, early employees, or execs at like that first generation of SaaS companies. Pulled together a small $3.5 million fund, to, which you know, was a grind and took over a year to do for even that small of a fund just to test the concept. And so now here we are, kind of fast forward almost five years later, and we're you know, on our 11th cohort in San Francisco, third in New York now. We've invested in over 100 companies and kind of off to the races.
0: Well done, my friend. It's, it's quite a story. Although Thank you're you. a Columbia guy. I went to UVA. I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said he's a great believer in luck and he finds the harder he works, the more he has of it.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a big proponent of like, you have to set yourself up to get lucky and take certain risks to give yourself a chance. But I, the thing that Jim Collins had said really has stuck with me throughout my career of like, you really need to then figure out how do you leverage that luck and execute really well to like really catapult yourself. So Michael,
0: we've both heard the pundits say the world doesn't need another accelerator, right? Yes. And I know when you started AccelerPrize, a lot of folks told you not to. Uh, why'd you proceed?
1: Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people told me not to. It, it was really, so I'm an identical twin. I'm a very competitive person. And it was it was like I had this, obsession that i that i needed to do this and i felt like an accelerator was the best kind of happy medium of being able to invest but also being able to be very hands on with founders and i also felt like the size fund i'd be able to raise would be more conducive to the accelerator strategy than a more traditional venture fund mm-hmm. and so i i decided to do it despite yeah getting a lot of feedback from people telling me not to start an accelerator there were plenty of accelerators it's going to be really hard it's a lot of like very operationally intensive for a relatively small financial return because of the fund size and there were a lot of reasons not to do it but it was just something i was very passionate about and really wanted to wanted to prove people wrong and so decided to pursue it anyway So was it the the check size
0: and the need for diversification that that drove the accelerator versus traditional VC fund
1: Yeah so the, i think being an early investor, and this goes back to like, I, I was very early, in my, early in my career in investing, i had made like one or two angel investments, I was, I was new to investing, I had a lot to learn. And so in my mind, like, if you have a lot to learn as an investor, it's hard to go out and have the strategy of being, you know, having a concentrated portfolio, just because like, you, you end up with a lot less data points to learn from in that scenario. So I felt like I needed a highly diversified portfolio. And it was, so therefore, it was going to be relatively small checks. And then I felt like you know the best way to do that was through an accelerator model, because if you can truly provide a lot of value to these companies, then obviously you know, the accelerator model lends itself to be, being able to get you know, a good amount of equity relative to the amount of cash you're putting in. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it was a, a good place to start and lend itself best to like what I was most interested in.
0: Got it. And can you give us a sense for check size as well as fund size then and now?
1: Yeah. So we do the first fund was three and a half million. I think the first cohort back in 2014, we did 30K for five percent. And then after that, we switched it to 50k for five percent is kind of our standard deal. The second fund was seven million, just over seven million and we're closing on our third fund now which i think will be, you know, somewhere between 7 and 10 million and then also raising a a separate 25 million dollar seed fund on top of the accelerator.
0: Got it. Got it. So Michael, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of accelerators, i actually just heard a VC saying this the other day. He basically said that accelerators are trying to help out companies to, you know, figure things out. Companies that can't figure it out on their own And he was saying that those are not the companies that he wants to invest in. You know, the founders that can't figure it out. What's your response to these folks?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a reasonable argument. Look, like the accelerator, most accelerators, you're not going to get repeat founders who have started and built a company and had, you know, reasonable success. Like those people don't go to accelerators and that's fine. And so there's like some of that kind of selection bias, but that doesn't mean you can't get people who are have had impressive track records of success previously in their career in whatever field they were doing, but are new to starting a startup. So many of those people have gone on to build successful companies like that profile of person. And those people can benefit a lot from an accelerator. Like us specifically, we focus a lot on helping companies with go-to-market and sales and intros to customers. Like that's where really where we double down. So we get a lot of founders who you know, they're really smart. They've had a lot of great operating experience at various different companies, but maybe they're product and engineering led and they've never sold before. And so they want help selling and commercializing and, you know, building out sales processes that are scalable and repeatable. Like that doesn't make them a less impressive person or potentially less likely to be successful. It just means like it's a skill set that's missing in their in their skill set and we can help them achieve that. And so I think in general, like accelerators, you often don't get highly successful repeat founders, which you know obviously de-risks an investment a little bit. But I, I don't think that means you can't get impressive people.
0: Agreed. And let let's talk about that a bit, the the sales aspect. So I know that you you like working with people that have a willingness to sell, even if they don't have the capability, clearly based on what you just said. So how do you, you know, specifically help develop those sell skills for founders that are willing but but maybe uh, a bit green
1: yeah so we we sort of act like a vp of sales for companies in the program so we will work with them on really identifying and honing in on who's your ideal customer profile we then we actually will build out like lead lists for them we'll help them set up kind of outbound email campaigns and drip campaigns and then we can start to test the messaging and see like how is their conversion from like you know, certain demand gen techniques to a demo call or an intro call. And how does that compare to other companies in our portfolio that have similar deal sizes or have sold into similar, similar types of companies? And then we'll do like pipeline reviews once a week of like, okay, who's in your pipeline? How do we help you? Like, what tips can we give you to help move things faster through the pipeline or create more urgency? And then we have them record sales calls and we do like coaching around, how to improve the sales calls and, and everything. And and then on top of that, we do a lot of like, we leverage our network to, to make customer intros as well so that we can get direct feedback from those people in our network to help them tweak the messaging and tweak the sales process and everything. So we get really in the weeds on on sales and really try to coach the founders to to get good at sales and feel comfortable around it. Because I just think it's incredibly important for founders to be selling at the end of the day, like, They need to sell to recruit, they need to sell to fundraise, and they need to sell to get customers. And I think it's the wrong approach when founders say, like, I'm just gonna build a product and hire a sales team without having sold the first five to ten customers themselves.
0: Got it. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the sort of what are some of the best lead gen or demand gen techniques that that you use when working with founders?
1: It's different for every company, but you know, a lot of the things we do are, you know, even Little hacks like things like Duck Soup, where it will like automatically kind of click on LinkedIn profiles of like the type of customer you're going after, and then you can like surface, you know, see who clicks back and looks at your profile, and then surface content to them. So or like follow up with them after they do that. So little like hacks like that, and then you know more high level or generally is like really trying to target what we call like lighthouse customers. So it's like people who are thought leaders in whatever industry you're in, like the people who are speaking at conferences or on podcasts or, you know, whatever else, because if you can get them to tip, then usually you can leverage leverage that, you know, that person or that brand to then, you know, build credibility to get into other companies. So really just like thinking about how, how can you be very strategic about who your first customers are and how you get in front of them in a way that isn't, you know, the same as everyone else, basically.
0: Michael, talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you think through pricing models and and strategies at early stage SaaS businesses.
1: Pricing is one of the as you think about go to market like pricing is one of those topics that always comes up, and every founder we work with kind of struggles to think through pricing, and we we ultimately find that almost almost every company. Under prices in the early days versus what they can get. Because, you know, for very rational reasons, like they're scared they're going to lose the deal or they just want to get some early traction. And so thinking about pricing, like one of the things that I do just as like a, a quick kind of back of the envelope calculation is like, if you really think about how you can scale an inside sales model with like AEs, you typically want to be able to see AEs booking like at least 3X, if not 4X, they're all in comp in ARR in a year. So if you think about, like, an AE making 100K, like, you want them to make 400K in a year in ARR or booked ARR, and then backing into your pricing based on, like, what feels reasonable for an AE to be able to sell in a year. So, like, if it's a... 40k ACV, like they need to sell 10 of those. So about one a month, like given your sales cycle, does that feel reasonable given like what you've experienced as a founder trying to sell? Like, does that feel reasonable? And I think that's always like a good gut check. And it's amazing. Like you'll, you'll have people who come in and they'll be like, yeah, it's a 15k ACV, but it takes like two months to sell and like they're slow moving and it takes a lot of meetings. Like that's going to be really hard to work. So then you need to really look at a, are you underpricing it? Or B, can you get, more penetration into that customer and grow ACVs over time. But I think that's like a good good way to gut check pricing in the early days, you know, before you have a lot of information and a lot of feedback from customers.
0: Got it. And on that latter point, how do you think about sort of initial basket size or initial revenue per customer, you know, ACV levels versus, you know, expansion opportunities and, you know, how to phase those in over time?
1: Yeah. So I I think it just needs to be a clear story around how you get there. So a good example is one of our companies, Indio, you know, which is selling software into commercial insurance companies. They're now at like series B stage, but their ACVs were really low in the early days. But there was like a clear story of like, look, we're going to, our wedge in is solving this one problem with our customers But there are like 10 other things we can do once we get get in the door with those, where they're using legacy software that we think we can replace over time. And they've been able to like consistently just continue to build out features to be, you know, have like parity of features with the legacy big incumbents and increase ACVs over time because of it. But that was one where like it was hard to see the math work on an inside sales team, but they've built out a big inside sales team with low ACVs and then have been able to execute well on building out the correct features, getting feedback from customers to understand how they go deeper into the customer and get ACVs up over time. Um, And it's worked really well for them. How about,
0: you know, related to that, how do you think about, you know, SOM versus TAM? Um, I saw just a tweet probably last week from Jason Lemkin that was something, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of, give me any business that can build out, you know, a strong beachhead with a really niche market and I can show you the path to like a huge business. So he was basically saying he doesn't need to see crazy TAM numbers early. He just wants to see really strong, you know, initial traction. You know, how do you guys think about that both when you're I guess vetting perspectives to get into the cohort as well as when you're working with companies progressing through it
1: yeah i mean i agree with him so i actually worked part-time with with jason just as like a venture partner for the saster fund uh mostly so i could learn from him as an investor and just you know he's built an amazing community and business around saster and so one of the things that i've talked to him about and he talks about and we talk about internally is is it's you know I think that that can work but I think the key is like we would want to make sure the founder understands how it expands and what the revenue opportunities are over time like we want founders who can tell us like here's how my market's going to evolve over the next 5 to 10 years and here's how we'll win we're going after this market initially but like these are the other opportunities that we see long term versus you know a founder who's very narrowly focused on on one piece of it but then hasn't really thought about how they expand from there, expand the market opportunity from there. I think that becomes more challenging. Like Obviously, we can think through that and we can come up with ideas around it. But I really, I, I think it's important that founders have that clarity of vision around how their market is going to evolve and how they can grow the market opportunity over time, even if they're going after a much smaller subset of the market initially.
0: Got it. Got it. You're working with companies on the East Coast, on the West Coast, in the Heartland as well. Companies going through the accelerator. And we talk a lot on the show about, you know, whether it's better to build in San Francisco. There's a lot of investors that think it's, you know, the best place in the world to build a company. We featured a number of investors that think that any place but SF is the best place to build a company. I think Jeff Clavier was recently on the program saying that it's more expensive to build a startup now than it was 10 years ago. Despite all the tools and the efficiencies that have been created, talent has just become egregiously expensive, you know, in the the greater Bay area. I know that you've done both, right? You've worked with companies building inside and outside. I was hoping maybe you can objectively break down maybe the biggest advantages to building in the Valley versus the biggest advantages building outside.
1: Yeah. So I think the, the one thing about San Francisco that I still feel like is missing from a lot of other places where we talk to companies is that like, you know, just swing for the fences mentality. And like, I think it's good for founders to be pragmatic and think about like how to build sustainable companies. But at the same time, like, I think you really need, like every investor is looking for outsized returns and outsized companies. And you really need to think big to get people excited, to recruit top talent, and having that ambition and that like swing for the fences mentality makes a a big difference, I think, in, in like being able to recruit the right people and fundraising. Like just, for example, I was talking to a company yesterday from the Midwest and they're like, yeah, you know, we're thinking about raising like a 500k seed round and then, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then we'll like, and like that, that's fine. Maybe they don't need to raise more than 500k. Maybe they can be very capital efficient. But taking a really smart team with a great idea and getting them at least exposed to San Francisco and like the skill sets of like. Hey, I've scaled the company from one to a hundred million in revenue. Like, here's what it looks like. Here are the things the growing pains are going to go through. Like that skill set is you know rampant around San Francisco and, not so in a lot of other ecosystems. And then just the mindset of like really thinking big um, and going forward and being able to like speak to that, I think is important. So I take this hybrid view of like, clearly San Francisco is crazy expensive. It's highly competitive for talent But I think if companies can at least tap into that network to like suck out the knowledge and kind of the learnings from that ecosystem, I think that's helpful. Like I think completely avoiding the Bay Area is not the greatest idea if you like really have big ambitions. And that doesn't mean you need an office there, but I think it means like. Spending some time there, talking to investors from the Bay Area, talking to like, you know, people who have, you know, operators who have been in these, these high growth companies out there. Because I just think the mindset is very different having spent eight and a half years out there before I moved back to the East Coast.
0: Have you ever suggested to a company to either, you know, move to the Bay Area or New York or, or vice versa? Suggested uh, to a company to move outside of one of those cities?
1: So I've, I've never suggested to a company that they move their entire company to the Bay Area. But I have suggested to companies that they build out at least a small team in the Bay Area if they're selling into a lot of other tech companies and they're just like a concentration of customers there. And if they have investors from the Bay Area, I think it can be helpful. And yeah, I've definitely suggested to companies in the Bay Area that they should at least consider building a function of their team outside the Bay Area. So either like building out a tech team somewhere else where it's a lot less expensive and they can get you know, more of a monopoly on, on great talent. I think it makes sense. But yeah, I think, which is why you're seeing this like macro trend of more and more remote work is I think you're going to see people where the you know, see companies have offices in a lot of different locations to optimize for talent flow and skill sets and where customers are located. Got it. Got it. So let's, in,
0: in light of sort of this talking point here, let's touch on pedigree. You know, I know, Many investors have these simple heuristics. If a founder didn't study at, you know, a Stanford or Ivy-level institution, they pass. If a founder didn't work for a Fang tech company or a fast-growing private company, pass. At Newstack, you know, I'm based in Chicago. We like to say that, you know, we're in the business of exceptions. Um, so deals that have all the right ingredients for success, except the sort of optics of provenance. Michael, where do you stand on, on pedigree and you know, how do you define it?
1: Yeah, so I, I don't think pedigree should be defined by what school they went to or what company they worked for, because I think that's what has like somewhat gotten us into trouble around the lack of diversity in the industry. I think instead, it's, what's much more important is like, have they shown a track record of being successful in whatever they were doing and overcoming adversity? And then, you know, looking for more nuanced things that I think are indicative of, of like a founder's ability to be successful. And one of these is like one thing that Jason Lemkin actually always talked about with me. And I think he talks about it publicly is like the concept and notion of like, would I work for the founder? And if you really boil that down, it's really about like, do you think the founder is going to be able to get really good people to work with them? Which is a function of like, how well can they talk with clarity and conviction about what they're building and where they're going and how the market's evolving, like I talked about before. And then like, do they seem obsessed with the business? Like, you know, and, and that's a hard thing to assess out. Like, how do you know if someone's like obsessed with the business, they can say they're obsessed, but like, how do you really look for that? You know, little things I look for, I think are important are like, you know, response times on emails. Like how quickly are they responding to things that are important? Cause I think it's like an ind- indication that they're always thinking about it. Can they talk in like, very granular detail about their pipeline and their contracts and their contract sizes and like their customers. Like if they can't, that's a bit of a red flag for me. Like as the CEO, you should be obsessing at the early stages about like, who's in your pipeline? Who's your biggest contract? How did that happen? Like, how'd you win this deal? You know, what customers are you talking to right now? Like if you're not, if you don't know that stuff like that, that can be a red flag. So I think that's one thing that we look for. And then, you know, the other is just like, you know, do you have the right skill sets and background for what you're building? Like you may not come from a brand name fund, but if you come from a specific industry and you're solving a problem for that specific industry and you know the industry really well, I think that's probably more important than did you go to Stanford or wherever else. So yeah, those are the things that we look for and care about from a pedigree standpoint. It's just you know more about a track record of success and overcoming adversity. And then you know, deeply understanding the problem and the market you're going after and being able to talk about it with clarity and conviction.
0: Love those. Love those points. I think those are super valuable for, for founders and investors alike. I know I was just talking to my team the other day and some of the final questions we ask before we make an investment because we have a, a deal flow team and they're running their own deals. But a final question I asked to everybody on my team who's sponsoring a deal is, uh, would you go work for this founder? If you weren't yeah. working here, right? Would you invest, you know, 50K of your own net worth in this founder if you had it, for instance? And so some of those questions, I think, reveal the degree to which one is convicted, both, you know, the deal sponsor and our team, as well as, as the founder themselves.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are great questions.
0: Michael, what percentage of companies, you know, going through the cohort are you guys investing in at completion?
1: Out of our second fund, we reserved some of the, some of that seven million went towards following on in some of the companies. I think it's, you know, we're probably investing in about a third of the companies in follow-on. Part of the rationale for raising this seed fund is, you know, being able to invest larger dollar amounts in a subset of the companies versus what we've been doing because a lot of our follow on investments right now are still in the relatively small side, like fifty to one fifty range. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's probably about a third of the companies right now.
0: Got it. And in terms of measuring success, you know, if you had to pick one key metric that you're most proud of, what would you highlight?
1: I would say MTS score of the founders going through the program. So, okay. you know, like I said, for an accelerator, the the only way you can be successful as an accelerator is if you truly drive value for companies. And so that's been like a core KPI for our team from the beginning. Is like do founders have an amazing experience to the program? Did they feel like it was worth it, and would they recommend other founders to the program? We've consistently had very high MPS scores. I think the last, you know, the last like five cohorts or so were averaging between eight and nine MPS, and so that's a stat that I'm like incredibly proud of. Where we track, we're like maniacal about that and talk about it all the time, and you know, even have some comp tied to it. Like it's, it's a hugely important stat for us. And I think like one of the most important things we can do, because none of this works if that's not, if that's not high.
0: How have you maybe adjusted or, or changed the program based on NPS feedback?
1: Yeah, so in the beginning, when I first started, it was just me for the first few years. And I was running around like crazy trying to do everything, like find companies and like leverage my network and I can relate, Michael, I can relate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things I realized was like I tried to do everything for them. I tried to be like amazing at everything and probably was mediocre at all of it. And so what I realized is like, look, where can we actually move the needle for these companies at this stage? And it was two things. One is sales revenue and one is fundraising fundraising is obviously highly correlated to sales so it was probably like late in fund one where i where i made the decision of like let's really double down on go to market i brought in a partner who was you know someone i had wanted to hire for a long time she was like one of our top you know sales mentors she's one of the best people i've ever met at coaching people how to sell her last name is literally sales. She was, like, born to do this. And so, like, I brought her in. She's been a VP of sales at five different companies. She's consulted to a lot of, like, you know, seed stage and series A stage companies on on sales. I brought her in, and, like, we collectively really doubled down on, let's focus on go-to-market. Let's make these these founders are amazing at selling let's help them accelerate growth accelerate revenue get in front of more customers faster you know close bigger deals and then that will then be pretty highly correlated to helping them with fundraising and i think once we did that and really really focused on that is when nps scores started getting higher because you know if you're a founder in, in the early days like an intro to a customer is the fastest way to your heart. Uh, like that, that's that's what, that's what that's what moves the needle for you. That's what you care about. It's yeah. non dilutive capital. Like you know it, you know companies fail because they don't have customers, not not necessarily because they run out of capital. You know that was the decision point that we made, and and I think that's what's led to like being able to really improve it. And then you know we also get we do exit interviews with every company coming out and ask for feedback, and we constantly are iterating and trying to improve the program and. But I think that was like the big difference maker right there.
0: Love it. Love it. You know, I was teaching a course to a group of about 40 founders yesterday, a course on how to raise capital. One of the little anecdotes that I give folks at one point in the presentation is uh, this interview that was done with both Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. And the interviewer asked them, you know, if you had to, in one word, summarize, you know, your key to success, what would it be? And the two of them answered at the exact same time with the exact same word. Do you by chance know what it was? No. Focus. 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 Yeah. And makes uh, sense. I mean, I I think it's so critical, and I just see a lot of folks missing the mark. I mean, whether it be founders or or investors, right? There's there's so many investors now that are trying to be Andreessen or trying to be first round, trying to do platform. You know, they're hiring platform folks, and some people are doing it well, so you got to give them a lot of credit. But some people are trying to be everything to everyone. You know, help with talent, help with tech stack, help with marketing, help with sales, uh, help with fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I asked. Founders in my portfolio, how is it? And the response is usually not, it's bad, but the response is also not, it's great. It's, it's usually, it's fine. Yeah. And I like your model of you know, having a superpower around those two things instead of you know, being mediocre at 10 things. Yeah. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Over the past few years, have you seen any trends or, or major changes with regards to SaaS that founders and investors should be aware of?
1: No, you know, obviously, there's just a lot more SaaS companies, although I think we're still in the early days of a lot of industries fully kind of shifting over to that. But I do think there's like this, you know, you're seeing a little bit of fatigue around the number of SaaS applications there are, which then makes it harder and harder to rise above the noise. And, you know, you I think you'll see some companies where they're, they're starting to like pair back on the number of SaaS companies. So really being able to prove ROI is important. So I think you know, you're seeing some of that, some of those sort of trends. I think another interesting one, we've seen a number of companies that instead of selling software to the incumbents, like they're actually just building the services businesses that are like built from the ground up with tech and are tech enabled. So like Flexport's obviously a really good one in freight forwarding, which I'm fortunate enough to have been an angel investor in, but like Compass and real estate you know, we invested recently in one that's that's building out like a scrap metal brokerage business that's like tech enabled and kind of doing it much more efficiently than others. So I think there's a bit of a trend in that. I'm curious to see what other industries we see that in, but there's a, there's a lot of those now. I think you know it'll be interesting if there's like one in construction, like a tech enabled general contractor or something. But,
0: are yeah. these businesses that are starting as services businesses that are tech enabled and they're They're building out traction that way in, you know, with the goal of becoming more of a product or tech company over time?
1: Yeah. Although I don't think they ever have the goal of fully being a tech company. Like I think it's it's like, you know, if you look at Flexport as an example, they're a fully licensed, straightforwarder working with brands to import products in. And they basically are just like, we're gonna build technology to do it better, faster, more efficiently, and in some cases cheaper than most of the incumbents in the space but they're at the end of the day, like they're a services company that is just leveraging technology and like automating more and more over time and building technology to make them better and more efficient over time. But their goal is just to be, we want to be the best freight forwarder in the world for our brands. And it's like a bake-off, like they can go to brands and say, you know, try importing products, some of your products with us versus your old freight forwarder and see what happens. And, you know, a lot of the early growth (laughs) from Flexport was, was just like, from my understanding, at least from the outside looking in was, you know, they would just go and do ba- these bake-offs and just win every time, which was a great model. And so I think you'll see that in other, like this one in the scrap metal industry, you know, he, the founder was building out a scrap metal business, but also is younger and kind of tech savvy and was, was like, hey, I can do this better and more efficiently and build out software to do that. And so he you know launched a tech enabled kind of scrap metal brokerage company, which you know, we really one of the reasons we really liked it is like the intersection of people who understand the scrap metal industry and have the wherewithal and ambition to build like a tech venture scale type business is probably pretty low, which creates you know some barriers yeah. to entry there. And it's the same similar dynamics of what I saw in Flexport in the early days of like, hey, look, you use this this broker to move your scrap metal, to sell your scrap metal, to like pick it up at the scrapyard and like, you know, ship it to where whoever's buying it, why not test using us? And then we're going to just build out product and technology around those processes to make it as efficient and transparent and, you know, inexpensive as possible. And I think they have a huge opportunity ahead of them because of that.
0: Is there like a clever acronym or descriptor for these businesses in the industry now, or is it just tech-enabled services?
1: Yeah, I don't know if there is yet. I'm sure someone will come up with one soon.
0: You know, Michael, there's been some recent issues in the tech space with regards to employee options. What have you witnessed and what would you like to see change?
1: Yeah, uh, obviously the there was that big issue with, with TopTal, And I saw a tweet recently of someone who was an early employee at WeWork, but... Yep you know, she was young and naive and didn't know any better and, you know, probably should have gotten equity and didn't, which is, you know, unfortunate to see. And even looking back on my experiences, like I would, I had no idea what I was asking for or looking for when I was getting equity in box. And even, and then when I became, even did know a little bit more going to academic direct and negotiating my comp there I literally had to ask like 10 times to get to understand, like, you know, what percentage of the company is this actually? Like, how much in preferred shares is sitting on top of this? Like, what do different scenarios look like? Like, it's just amazing to me how hard it was to get that information out -hmm. out of them. And then the concept of like, you have to buy your shares three months afterwards. You know, some people don't have the cash flow to do that. Like, I I bought my box shares and bought my Academic Store X shares, but I was kind of fortunate that I had some liquidity to be able to do that but some people some people don't and so and that feels unfair to me like if you work somewhere for three or four years and the constraint is cash to be able to buy your options you know obviously there's funds that have popped up that like help fund that and stuff but it's still not a huge industry and I, I think going back to Flexport I think they were one of the first companies I saw where they put an unlimited time on like you don't have to buy them three months after leaving the company which I think is like a trend you'll see more and more of and I think would be a good thing. And then I think, you know, I saw in this recent YC batch, actually there was a company called Compound that's helping to like make sense of employee equity. Like I think there should be more and more of that. I think companies need to be much more transparent around what does the equity mean? How does it work? Like what are different scenarios on like what it could be worth someday? I think you will will see five years from now, much more transparency around that much more flexibility around how people and when people have to buy options which i think will be a good thing for the industry because you know i'm biased having been an early employee at a company but i think early employees at companies you know make a huge difference on the success or failure of a company and they should be rewarded for that
0: what's a fair sort of vesting cliff and duration
1: i think the 1 year cliff 4 year vest is reasonable You could make an argument that it could be even longer. I don't think it needs to be shorter. I think the bigger issue is just if you leave the company, how much time do you have to buy your options? And in most cases, at least historically, it was like three months. I think you'll see that continue to get pushed out. I think, you know, I don't think every company will go to indefinite. And, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense, but I think it it might make sense to push it out longer to more like a year or two years.
0: Michael, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it?
1: That's a good question. You know, obviously I'm a big fan of Jason Lemkin being in the SaaS space and having worked with him a bit. So, you know, I think he has the, some of the most authentic and really helpful and tactical content around building SaaS companies. So that's always interesting to me. I'd be curious to hear other people who run accelerators on, so obviously there's YC but like you know, even, you know, seeing like toss from AngelPad, and they've had a lot of success, I would say more under the radar than YC, but have, you know, consistently had great performance. So someone like that would be really interesting to see. Awesome.
0: What investor has influenced you most and why?
1: So Jason, having worked with him, I think has had a lot of influence, but I would say two other people that I really admire one, one of which I know and one I don't know, but admire him from afar is one is Aiden Sanket from Felicis. I just think like, you know, man, his track record is unreal. He's so good. He is so good. (laughs) How early he invests and just like Felicis to me is like such a, one of the top seed funds in San Francisco in like the market with probably the most seed funds anywhere by far. And he didn't start it that long ago, and started with a very modest sized fund, and has just crushed it. So I have a lot of admiration for him. And then I think another one is uh, is Leo Polovitz from Susa. Their first fund is amazing. Like they were in Flexboard and Robinhood and Andela. And I think Leo is just such a genuinely good person. puts out an amazing content. And again, like Susa has went from you know a brand new fund not that long ago to. One that I think is like one of the better seed funds in in San Francisco, and Agreed. and he's just such like a humble and you know good person that I just have a lot of admiration for how he's built Susa, how they've built it. But I know him personally, and just what what they've done. So those would be two I would I would mention.
0: Leo is the best. Yeah, we've ac- we've actually featured Leo twice and uh, fairly recently earlier this year. Had Aiden, yeah. oh nice, fantastic investors. All right, just to wrap up here, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Yeah, just email us Mike at AccelerPrize.bc or on Twitter. It's just MGCardivon.
0: Well, Michael, I I really appreciate you sharing the time. I know that uh, with a four-month-old, you're probably not getting much sleep.
1: (laughs) No, he's had had a rough few nights in a row. Oh, no. Definitely uh, over-caffeinated right now. (laughs) Oh, no.
0: Oh, no. I just just got back from a long vacation with my, my wife and son, and so... I am uh, readjusting to work life, but I know it gets busy, especially with little ones. So I appreciate you carving out the time.
1: Yeah, no. Likewise, appreciate you having me on the show.
0: That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.